All right? Everybody doing good? Are we ready? All right. I'm a little giddy this morning, um, which uh, can be dangerous. I told the guys earlier, I was like, I've been kind of giddy this week, uh, thinking about um, this sermon, because I've been now a pastor. On March the 4th, it began my 17th year of being in full-time ministry, and I've never had the opportunity to preach this passage, um, and I believe be faithful to the text until today. And so it is one of my favorite passages, and if uh, Mission Church has a life verse for its congregation, then it is probably this one. And it is one that we often forget, but that we constantly and daily need to be reminded of uh, this morning. And so uh, let's get started in that. Have you ever wondered, we've been talking a lot in this sermon series about um, the life and the church that Christ is going to build or is building. And so we've, we've discussed a lot about identity. And we start thinking about identity, we're asking the question, who am I? Who am I? Because ultimately for us to truly obey Jesus daily in spirit and in truth, to because uh, get this, this is an extra part, all right? To love God is to obey God. And there's lots of people who say they love God, yet don't obey God. That means they don't love him. All right? I don't care where they came from. They were born in the South. All right? We like biscuits and gravy, bacon, carbs, all right? And we like to tell people we're Christians, even if we're not, okay? Game on. All right, that was just completely free, okay? So we, we have to understand, as Paul in, in, in chapters 4 through 6 is going to tell us how to live, but we can't put the cart before the horse, because ultimately, we need to understand who we are or what we do is religiosity void of God. Okay? So we have to fight to know and to evaluate, which can be really, really tough to figure out who you are. If you're parents of teenagers or you've had college students, you've watched that train wreck happen. As those kids try to figure out who they are. It can be extremely difficult, but we must fight the drift of complacency and false identity to understand who we are in Jesus. And so Paul has been, he's been praising and worshiping this big long run-on sentence. He has now prayed, and as we preached through last week and as we taught through at our missional community, is that, man, he knows the ultimate prayer is, again, because our identity is often lost, is that we need to pray, as Paul prays, that God would illuminate his character, that God would illuminate how that we, the bride of Christ, are the inheritance of Jesus, of God, um, but also that we need to pray that the power of God, the same power that resurrected Jesus, is alive and well inside of the real, true, authentic church. So Paul is laying that out before us, and now we'll begin to press in even further into who God is, therefore defining who we are. In chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 6 to 7 today. Pastor Justin will conclude this um, sermon next week. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All right? So he's writing to this church in Ephesus. They used to be wizards and warlocks and pagan worshipers. They practiced sexual immorality and the worship of these other gods. I mean, crazy things. While in a metropolis, while in, they had libraries and gymnasiums and, and the games and all of these great things inside of Ephesus in this culture. It's a wealthy culture. And yet Paul is reminding them several years after a revival took place in Ephesus, Hey, don't forget, if you want to know who you are, you must first remember who you once were. You were dead in your trespasses. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Jesus, God, the Trinity, creates man, he creates woman, says, man, you can do whatever you want inside of this garden except for one thing, you can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do, you will surely, what? Die. Now they eat of the tree. They figure out they're naked, right? They're trying to hide from God. And yet God shows up on the scenes, and they did not immediately, physically die. Why? Because ultimately Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, was not speaking of merely a physical death. That will come But there's a greater death than physical death, and that death is a spiritual death. A spiritual one is way more deadly than a physical death. If you're in this room today, and you have ever lost a loved one, someone that you care about, what is broken? What do you really grieve? It's loss of relationship, right? If you you miss that relationship. See, every time death occurs, there is a broken relationship. And Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, is saying to us that even more so than a physical death breaks our relationship from our loved ones, a spiritual death breaks infinitely your relationship with an almighty God. It is broken. You are dead. Now, what uh, really smart people have tried to call this, and, and I would agree with them, is that this is this idea of you being dead in your trespasses and sins. So trespasses, think my, my great-grandfather used to, as a small child, um, <laughs> lift me over fences that would have signs on them that would say, no trespassing, um, in order for us to go fishing in those ponds. So I've been breaking the law from way back. All right. Um, think of when, G, when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses, that means that there is a boundary that God has for you that you are not to cross, and yet you were dead in them, meaning all of us encompassing all of humanity, you have crossed the boundary which God has said, do not cross it. Also, he uses the term sin there. It's a more common phrase in, amongst us when we think about the idea of sin. It's uh, you know, a lot of people will say it's like a, uh, when you've ever thrown darts, if you've ever hit anything outside of the bullseye, it's called a sin. All right. So the goal is perfection every time. 
If you miss perfection, you have sinned. You have missed the mark. And what is the mark for us? Holiness, perfection, God-honoring all of the time. And yet Paul decrees that we are what? We are dead in our sin. This is also known as what's called total depravity. And if you have your weekly inside the day, I don't normally do fill in the blanks, but I've got a lot of blanks. Don't worry. I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on each one of those points. I'm going to spend 45 minutes on each one of those points. So I hope you don't have anything scheduled, all right? So what's going to happen is, is inside of that weekly, there's some points to try to help you uh, this week to think through these things. So we get this idea of spiritual death, this relationship that is broken with God, that the, the fall of humanity is not just a stumbling, but it is a spiritual death that separates us from God. Total depravity. There's probably even a better name for it. It's, it's, it's probably better termed as total inability, okay? Total inability. What do we mean by this idea of total depravity, or some, some people call it radical corruption. Um, God rest his soul, R.C. Sproul, that's what he called it. He just passed away a few months ago. Uh, radical corruption. What do we mean by this? This idea of you were dead in your sins. It means this. It's a state of corruption in every human. How many humans? Every human where sin has infected every part of a man's nature, making the natural man unable to obey or to know God. This sinful nature has, has corrupted uh, man's thoughts, his, his words, and his deeds. It's, it's total because it affects everything. You, apart from Jesus, are spiritually blind. You are unable to please God. You are unable to obey God. You are unable to love God. It is impossible. Why? Because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Total depravity is not the absence of religion, though. Total inability is not the absence of religion. I mentioned this in our MC this last week. I asked the question, I said, tell me of an atheist inside of the Bible. We couldn't think of a single one. They're all religious. They're being saved from religiosity. Okay? The, the idea, the greatest threat against you and I's faith, faith is not atheism. The, the greatest threat is a false religion. And that's what we're seeing inside of Scripture. I mean, these people are worshiping. The, Eph the Ephesians, they worshiped other gods. The culture worshiped other gods. Paul himself, before his conversion, had a version of God worship. He was a Jew, void of the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. So we need to understand when we're talking about the idea of, of, the, of total depravity or total inability, uh, we're not talking about the absence of religion. If anything, you can be really religious and totally lost. Really religious and dead is what he's getting at here. Because you have to understand this. It is by your very nature 
very nature. I often say inside of here, if you steal something, that doesn't make you a sinner. You are a sinner by birth, therefore that's why you steal stuff. Okay? If you gossip about somebody, that doesn't make you a sinner. No, you're a sinner by your very nature. You cannot help it. You are totally unable of not doing these things. Why? Because it is as natural as you breathing is as natural as you and I sinning. We are sinners. Our culture has become in the last, I would definitely say the last 10 years, we've always kind of had a, a kind of bent toward this, but definitely in the last recent years, an obsession with zombies. I mean, think about how many zombie television shows there are. Okay? Think about how many tom, uh, zombie movies there are. Okay? Think about even games for kids, plants versus what? Zombies. All right? We get this idea that we are a culture that's kind of enamored with this idea of this zombie. And yet, what, what is a zombie? A zombie is a person that is dead. And yet, there is something still firing inside of their brain that all it wants them to do and all they know to do is to consume things. They have no feelings or emotions toward their victims. They simply want to eat they simply want to consume. They simply cannot help it. It is their very nature. And the Bible is telling us that apart from Jesus, that all these people that are walking around who do not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they are the walking dead, that they are zombies. Yes, they can make certain choices. They can do certain things. But within their very nature, it is to consume and to eat the things of this world and not the things of God. They cannot help it. Why are we enamored when the world goes the way of the world? What are we expecting? They're dead. It's dead. To further illustrate this, let's say that we were to take a lion. Big old hairy mane, just big old king of the jungle, right? And you were to put that lion inside of a room. And on one side of the corner of that room, there is, um, you know, a lot of ribs covered in sweet baby rays. You know what I'm talking about? Sweet baby rays barbecue sauce. Make you slap your mama. I mean, drive all the way to Franklin. Whack. All right? That kind of good. And you put this lion inside of a room, and in one side of the corner, there are all these rack of gazelle ribs over here, water buffalo ribs covered in sweet baby rays, and then you put a bag of, or a truckload of salad on this side. And you tell that lion to eat. What is it going to do? The salad isn't going to matter. He's going to want the meat. He's going to go after the animal, all right? He's like me. He's a meditarian, all right? He's going to go after that because why, though? Why is he going to walk past the healthy whatever to get to the meat? Why? Because it's in his very nature to want the meat. He, he cannot help it. Now, you put a rabbit inside that same room, and what's that rabbit going to do? It's not going to go for the sweet baby race because it's an idiot, it's going to go eat some grass. And then I'm going to shoot that rabbit. And then I'm going to eat that rabbit. 
and that's how I eat a salad. Okay? But that's going to happen. Why, though? It's their nature. I mean, none of us are watching Planet Earth 3, all right? Looking at those lions chasing those animals, going, wow, I can't believe that lion is chasing after that gazelle. No, let's all face it. We're all like, you better get that sucker. All right, they're working in packs to what? To trip up the lame and the weak. And we're, I'm rooting for that gazelle to get eaten in front of me. Okay? Get it. I don't have any remorse over that. Why? And that is how that animal survives. It is its nature. Brothers and sisters, friends and family, you must understand that, that sin has so infected every aspect of your thoughts, actions, attitudes, your deeds, everything about you, that you are hell-bent toward sin, Satan, and death itself because it is your very nature. For you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, what does total inability or total depravity not mean? All right? What does it not mean? It does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. Here's what I mean by that. God is very gracious even to the lost. You were born, even though you were born spiritually dead, in creation narrative, we are born as moral creatures. Okay? That God is refraining us. Think about the most terrible person in all of human history that you may know of, and I want you to know that they're not as bad as they could be. You are not as bad as you could be. God is gracious even toward those who are dead with this idea of a moral compass. Hitler probably loved his mama. Terrorists can be good dads. Okay? We need to understand that when we talk about total inability or total depravity, that we're not as bad as we could be. We can, with like I just mentioned, the second one would be that 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 we can make some moral choices, um, and they are good choices when compared to other people. But that doesn't mean that they're good choices when compared to God. Okay, so when we're talking about total depravity or total inability, we're not talking about that we are as bad as we could be. We are not. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Very thankful for that. All right, that's a hallelujah, amen, say it again, preach on preacher moment right there. I'm thankful that God has, is keeping back our very nature to some degree in all of humanity. The second thing is that, yes, you and I can make somewhat of a good moral choice in regards to how that plays out amongst people. All right, if, if you make me bad and I don't burn down your house, that's a good thing, though I want to, all right? It is a good thing to not do that when compared to, but here's the thing, is you don't need Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God to necessarily make that moral, earthly choice. The last thing is this, is that even non-Christians, even those who are dead in their sins, 
Because we're not as bad as we could be, because we are uh, enabled to make some sort of moral, earthly, horizontal choices, that we can be generous, that you can care about humanity, that you can engage in social justice, that you can, I mean, think about like, people like uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, adopting all those kids, all right? That can be a, you can be anti-abortion, Republican, NRA card member holding, and not know Jesus, and not know the Lord, okay? And yet, most people in our world and in our culture, if you were to talk about people on the side of the street today, and you were to begin to ask them questions, let's face it, that most people today do not have much of a problem admitting that they sin or that they're not perfect. Would you agree with that? Most people would not have a problem, and yet they would say things, well, we all do bad things. We love to say this in Christianese and in our world today, well, nobody is perfect, which really means I get to do whatever I want and use the excuse of nobody is perfect, right? And yet the Bible teaches that, that sin is, again, not just something that we do, but it's rather who we are. It is you and I's identity. It is our identity apart from Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses. We are sinners. It is in us. We are spiritually dead and unable to comprehend even spiritual truth. The Bible tells us even in Corinthians that this, this is folly. It's, it's stupid to the non-Christian. They cannot get it. They will not get it. So we, because of our death, are completely spiritual blind to the message of salvation. All right? So let's, let's take a time. I'm just doing a quick survey here. So if you have a weekly, you open that up. I'm not, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to read every one of these passages. I'm going to give you these points. I want you to take it home with you. We don't have a normal NC this week, but in two weeks... Let's put some questions in there, Pastor Justin, to talk about this as well. All right? Quickly, inside your weekly there, a few bullet points. Let's look at the whole scope from Scripture on what it means to be spiritually dead. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standards. The Bible tells us in Romans that no one seeks God on their own. It tells us that, that we can't even understand the things of God, that no one can understand the things of God. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that all of our intentions are evil. So even if you adopt a child apart from Jesus, that is both earthly good and moral and yet evil. Because of your intentions. See, Christians adopt. Why? For a completely different reason than why the world adopts. We adopt because we have been adopted. They adopt because, again, they're able to make some sort of, they want to help people. We do adoption to the glory of God. They do a adoption for the glory of self, even if they're unwilling to admit it. Our very intentions 
are wicked. The next one, Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are deceitful. Um, even the quote-unquote good things that we do are filthy. Isaiah 64, 4. We do not become this way. You are born this way. We have a lot of new parents inside of our, our congregation. And what you quickly realize is after that 48 hours of being in, but ding dong, and then come get your kid, and what you're like, whoa, this is the greatest thing ever. Oh, we got this. And then you take that baby home. And you quickly begin to realize that as beautiful as this child is, that it from birth knows how to manipulate you. From birth. There is not a parent in the world that doesn't believe their kid at some point is not an evil spawn of Satan. All right? I mean, you know this. this is, it's what the Bible tells us. It says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that the father and mother were engaged in sin when the, the child was conceived. But it, what it's getting at is the, the picture is that, that from the very beginning, I was a sinner. The Bible tells us that we were slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that we inherited our sin nature from our first father, Adam. It tells us that because we are sinners, we cannot choose good. And what that means, that choosing of good, that would be a spiritual good. That would be a godly good. We cannot change our intentions on our very own. A, a, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. I love this Jeremiah passage here. 1323, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Why can't they do that? It's their nature. Keep reading with me. What does it say? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard's his spot? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You cannot change your nature. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that we cannot please God. And what is the result of all of these things? The result is the penalty for all this is physical. Eventually, we are all going to end up in a hospital or in a bed somewhere, and we are going to die. But even more than that is that the penalty of this is spiritual death. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul will later go on to say in Romans, for the wages of sin is what? Death. So how do you know if you're dead today? Or how do you know that you once were dead? You stink. You have an aroma about you. And how is that on Roma? Paul is going to tell us. He says this in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. Be encouraged this morning. You are so spiritually dead that you stink. What is the fragrance of this death? It's what you've been influenced by. It's what you've been following. We are all being discipled by something or someone, ladies and gentlemen, and it's either Jesus or it's these things. Apart from Jesus, you follow the pattern of this world. Apart from Jesus, you follow the pattern of this world. The culture has great influence on you from the time that you are born until the time that you die. I can prove it. Raise your hand this morning if you own a Yeti. You know what a Yeti is? It's a sippy cup for old people. But we were all convinced about a year ago that we all needed them. You know what a Yeti is, that metal cup that's been around since Coleman? Right? You get them at Walmart for the last 50 years. It just didn't say Yeti on it. And your grandpa used to carry a big, tall Yeti. That had a twist top, and you could fill it up with coffee. Anybody have a grandpa like that? I did. He was a carpenter. Delmer. Delmer Baker. Delmer and Phyllis. He packed that sucker wherever he went. Okay? And yet you and I, what? Well, man, you need a Yeti. You know what they used to call a Yeti? A Tervis. But you traded in all your 50 Tervises. So you pay attention always. I didn't say a word. You got 50 Tervises in the cabinet. And now we're slowly replacing them with metal cups. Why? Well, this keeps it colder longer. Or hotter longer. Okay? You are deeply, we are deeply influenced by our culture. Even in Christendom, brothers and sisters. Because here's what I know. I've been afforded the opportunity to spend a lot of time outside of the United States doing missionary work. And what I find there is that Christians in other places don't live like Christians here. And I'm not just talking about their socioeconomic status. I'm saying that what, what if in such a way, because it, again, it's tough when even all of Christianity, especially American, westernized, enlightenment-driven Christianity, is all heading in this direction. This is how we live. Okay? Retirement, not a biblical thing. I'm not saying it's in, innately wrong, but we have to understand there, there's not a biblical grounds for this idea that you're going to eventually save up enough money to retire. The things that we get worked up about are very culturally driven problems. The things that we worry about, you do it, I do it, 
We all do it. Imagine for a moment that if we would begin to live as biblical Christians inside of America, but that we can learn from some of our friends from India or from Africa or from Kazakhstan or from Europe or these different places where they don't, they're not able to consume as much. Imagine the freedom that you and I would have if we didn't have such a big house payment. We didn't have the debt that we have. See, all of that is driven by a culture that is pressing in on us. You, know, you need to buy these clothes. You need to drive these cars. Man, that's a real struggle for me. It's a real struggle for us. Because, man, we, we feel that. We've got to make, we've got to live, we've got to do, we've got to drive, we've got to be. All of this and all of those are distractions that feed our nature like zombies. The nature to consume when the nature of the Bible is to give. It is to conceive, not to take. And yet, man, am I the only one that feels that beckoning, that screaming? Nowhere in Scripture we get an idea where we need to own a house even. Man, we feel that pressure. We're driven by those culture. We smell of that consumerism. We follow the pattern of rebellion like Satan. That's the second thing that Paul tells us here. You're following the culture. You were dead in your trespasses. You follow the culture. The way it goes, I mean, this is why we, we even see people in the culture who, though the Bible would say things like marriage is only between a man and a woman, that we will even have people within so-called Christianum who would want to slight on that and go a different direction. Why? Because all the culture seems to be heading that way, and it's much easier to do that. The second thing is the aroma that begins to permeate from us is that, that we are following in the pattern of rebellion like that of Satan. What does that mean? You and I want to be God. And he has, since Satan and death, has great influence on that mentality. And he's been doing that since Genesis. Surely, surely you won't die. Surely, you can have all this now. I mean, even Satan has these temptation, uh, the temptation of Jesus, right? He's saying, hey, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give it to you right now. I mean, if you want to be big in this culture, Jesus, you got to have a palace like Herod. I'll give you all of this right now if you will simply bow down and worship me. We are following the pattern. Brothers and sisters, you need to get this. On your very, very best of days, you are more like Satan himself than Jesus. I had someone who I love dearly once tell me that they don't sin every day. But they do occasionally make mistakes. My response was mentally, because I couldn't respond because it was my mom. Um, she said, and she's grown from this, this long time ago. 
So I didn't want to be disrespectful to her. I was a new Christian, and she told me that she didn't sin every day. She would not say that now. Love you, Mom. I know you're listening. Mentally, I go, well, why don't you just do whatever you did yesterday? Do that today. And then you won't sin. And then the next day, do what you did these last two days. Then you can be perfect. And then why do you need Jesus? I'm talking about guys on the day when, when you never lust after a woman. When you never gossip, ladies. When you never covet anything. When you have a family devotion and you spend three hours in prayer and five hours in the Bible and you share the gospel with ten people on whatever your very best day, that if you in yourself were to stand before God and he was to say, why should I let you into this party? And you were to say, well, on my very best day, these are all the things that I did. He would say in that moment, depart from me. I never knew you because, brothers and sisters, on your very best day, you're more like Satan than you were Jesus. Third thing, we follow the patterns and the desires and the cravings of our own flesh. We want to do what we want to do. We're constantly trying to numb our lives, aren't we? Whether that's with alcoholism, whether that's with pills, whether that's with money, whether it's with, again, buying things, whether that's with sleep, college student, that's with immorality. We're all just wanting something for a moment that if we, if we do this, then this will, it will satisfy a desire and passion within our flesh and give us reprieve from whatever is going on. I was having some struggles several years back, and um, I, I just, I wanted to become numb. So I went to a doctor and told him about all these things that were going on. They were real things. I was not lying. And, I, and this is scary. I had this doctor look at me and say, hey, Eric, what if I was to give you a pill? And within 24 hours, you would be able to look at me and say that you have awakened for the first time in your life. Sounds like something about a movie, doesn't it? It was real. He gave me a pill. I took that pill. I was up for 70, 72 hours straight. One of those nights, I kept Justin out with me. <laughs> All night long. And at three and four in the clock in the morning, I was as awake as I am right now. I was more focused than I've ever been in my entire life for 48 hours. It was though I had awakened for the first time in my life. And I got so scared by it that I stopped taking it. We're all X, Y, Z, whatever you want to call it, can find ourselves drifting toward wanting to be 
falling in love with the passions and desires of our flesh. I mean, how hard is it for us to say in this culture, no? I'm talking about even over simple things, like overpriced coffee. A good sale. How hard is it for us to say no? Why? Because we are dead in our sins. The result of all of this death is what, what does the Bible tell us? Among whom we were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is wanting these people to know. He is wanting them to get and to not forget, as we often do, where we once came from. And he's telling them, hey, you've been in this Christian thing for a little while, but hey, don't forget You were once these dead folk. Like the rest of mankind, you were children of wrath. You were deserving. You stood condemned. This is why Jesus is able to say, I come not to condemn you. Why? You're already condemned. You stand condemned and deserving the wrath of God. From the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, you deserved the the destination should be, or your eternal destination should be cast out from an eternal place and separated from God's love. This is who you were. Man is left in this state utterly hopeless and helpless. And I love you. And this is where, after me usually telling you this, you want to say things like, well, what about my free will? And this is where I respond to you. Where is an enlightened, American-defined idea called free will in the Bible? And then I'll give you the answer. It's in two places. The idea of an American, and even I would say that this is even above that for sake of illustration. The idea of what you, as an American, you know, you got a, an eagle carrying a flag in its beak tattooed on your chest, American. Idea of free will is found in two places. The first place is the first two chapters in the book of Genesis. That idea of freedom was inside of your first parents, Adam and Eve. But since the fall, brothers and sisters, that concept does not exist in that way. You have a will, but that will is bound. That nature is bound. It tells us. I've read to you the scripture over and over. If that is not dead, what does that mean? If our hearts are deceptive, then what does that mean? If you cannot choose God, then what does not choose God mean? If the scripture says no one seeks after God, no, not one, if that doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Because see, there is a greater freedom 
will that is in the scripture and the one who truly holds it from eternity's past into eternity's future is the almighty will of God, which is triumphant over whatever you want to call free will. His power and what he wants to do trumps any idea of what we call freedom and freedom of the will. See, brothers and sisters, you are free in this life as a man is free in a jail cell. He can do push-ups. He can do some chin-ups. He can use the bathroom if he wants. He can lay down on his bunk. He can read a book. He can make choices. But he's in a jail cell. He has no ability within himself to get himself out of that. And so he has some sense of freedom, yes. But it is not an American, enlightened type of freedom that we often will love more than we love God. So where is our hope? Where is our hope this morning? I want you to know that I'm tempted this morning for us to leave right now. But I'm not a quitter. A temptation is for us to leave right now because you need to know who you are. And you need to carry the weight and the seriousness. In the words of, I believe Spurgeon once said this, show me a man who thinks less of his sin and you will show me a man who thinks less of God. See, you, we live in a culture that doesn't think it's as bad as it is. I had a man leave a former church of mine because I, I said in a sermon that man is not good. And he tried to deny that fact. He was a Bible study teacher in the church that I went to. And he believed that man was innately good. And yet, what did we read in the Scripture? Let us not forget. But Paul continues, so I'll continue. He tells us here in verse 4, so knowing all of this, he continues in verse 4, and this is what he said, but you said a prayer. Let's come to the altar. Let's take up an offering. He says in verse 4, but you made a decision. He says in verse 4, but, but you walked an aisle. How ridiculous does that sound? Based off of everything we just read from the Bible. Quite ridiculous, Pastor. We must take a hard look at ourselves in these scriptures and ask this, this question. If left to myself, would I ever choose God? No. You wouldn't. You would never choose God. And so we get this that Paul, again, he's not telling them to beat them all up. 
He's telling them to remind them of who they were and compare who they were to what God has done. This is the, the biggest, it's been said that this is the biggest but in all of Scripture. And in this passage, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, all of this, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but who? But God. God did something. God made a choice. God found you dead inside that burning house and ran in. It wasn't like he was waiting for you to wake up from in, in, you know, intoxication from that smoke to finally say, rescue me. No, God went into that burning house where you were dead and pulled you out of it. All of the gospel can be summed up into those two words, but God, and we may never forget that, that we are prone to do so. But God Kids don't get adopted every day because they ask for it. Kids get adopted because someone said, that is my kid. And they will often come kicking and screaming and not wanting to leave that orphanage. But after spending some time with dad, you, they will look back and you say, you want to go back to that orphanage? You can ask my, my nephew Ben this. You want to go back to Haiti? No. And yet for the first 12 months, he begged. You want to go back? No. Never going back to that place. Why? He spent time with Daddy. Daddy had a better place. How arrogant it of us to think that we have the power to say a prayer. To, to walk an aisle, to make a decision, and to raise ourselves from the dead, because that's what you're saying. It's like putting makeup on a corpse. We love to go to funerals inside the South and walk up to that dead body and look at people and say, you know, Grandpa Delmer looks really good. He looks real natural. You just lied in a funeral. They don't look natural. They look dead. They look dead. Why? Because they are dead. And there, there is nothing that we can do to numb ourselves or to medicate ourselves or to legislate ourselves and, and to bring us back through this. Our hope, uh, we are not hopeless. But Paul told us in his prayer, may they know the, the power that is in the hope that we have in what? In the resurrection of Jesus, what has he done? He has made us alive. But God, even rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He made you alive. This is the beauty of the gospel. If God is, is offering salvation and waiting on us to take it and to make a decision and to accept it before it's activated, then he will wait there forever. Because on your own, you will never make that choice. And the idea and picture of God's character being one of an extended present for all of eternity that you will won't take, you know what that tells me? That our God is really weak. That he's weak. And yet that's not what we see in 
the Bible. People at funerals and in caskets don't make decisions. It wasn't as though you were drowning out there but had some sense of a little bit of life and that God is on this boat and he throws out the life raft and, and you and your, as you're sinking down your last grip is that you get to grab the life vest and he pulls you in. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you were out in that sea, you were dead, cold, stiff as a board ugly eyes bugging out of your body bloated and rotten and Jesus jumps into that pool brings you to life brings you to safety and resuscitates your soul that's the image of the gospel dead people don't respond to the gospel they will not and they cannot that is why our hope is that and truth is, is that we have been made alive. Again, the gospel is wrapped up into these two words, but God. And how does he do this? He does this in love. He does this in mercy. He does it in grace. He does it in kindness. He has made us alive. All of this to illustrate a great truth about what God has done to Jesus. What did God do to Jesus? He made him alive. He raised him up. He seated him on a throne. And brothers and sisters, look at this glorious truth for us here today. What does the Bible tell us? That God has done that to Jesus. But what has Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God done to us? The exact same thing that he did to Jesus. That he has resurrected you from death. That he is, he, is, he, is, he is what? That he has raised you up. That means that out there in this future, there's this thing called glorification where we're going to get new bodies, new names, have a mansion in heaven. It's going to be an eternal party and relationship just soaking in God's love for his bride. Thirdly, not only does Jesus have a throne, but he has given us a throne next to him. See, in the original language here, the subject of this passage that we read here today, the subject is not you. The subject is actually God. And, and the main verb inside the original language here is, guess what? It is made alive. And it doesn't say that you made yourself alive. It doesn't say that you raised yourself up. It doesn't say that you seated your bottom next to him. No, it said he made us alive. It says he raised us up. It says he seated us with him. See, many of us have this idea that it is a false gospel, that God helps those who help themselves. That is not found in the Bible. That's like Benjamin Franklin. And yet that's what many people believe. No, that is not the gospel. God does not, uh, you know, <clears throat> wait on man. See, salvation, brothers and sisters, is you waking up in an ambulance and them having to tell you, hey, hey brother, hey, sister, just so you know, you're, you're okay. But you were dead. Flatlined. And I brought you to life. And let's face it, if you... What would you say? Thank you. I'm undeserving of this, 
I am not worthy of this. Thank you. And we spend the rest of our lives, that's why we are obedient, saying thank you. I don't know why you did this, but, but thank you. And the only proper response is for me to give you all of my life. Sin has not made us sick. It has not given you a twisted ankle. No, it has killed you. You are a dead man walking, but God has made you alive. You did not need resuscitation. You needed resurrection. And I want to give you a warning. For you to say that you ultimately initiated salvation is, to, to not, is much deeper of a problem than a lot of us put on. Because ultimately what you're saying and what's at stake is the resurrection itself. You're saying, ultimately, that you don't believe in the resurrection. That's what's at stake here. Paul tells us in the prayer, what? That they may know the power of God. How does he illustrate that? Through the resurrection of Jesus. And the entire language that now Paul is using toward you and I is what? That we were dead in our sins, made alive. If you go from death to alive, what is that? resurrection. And I've never met a person who has resurrected themselves. And yet, we know the power of God. What is it? That if you are in Christ today, that he has awakened you from a dead slumber, that you were dead in your sins, and yet we can rejoice. Why? Because salvation is the greatest miracle. It is a resurrection miracle. It is why when you get baptized, what do we say? You've been buried with Jesus and risen in Jesus. And so we must declare, if we're going to be faithful to the text, that I did not say myself, but Jesus has done it all. And when he awakened me, I confessed my sins. I believed in my heart. I went from being unable to now able. You've been awakened for the first time. Like it was the first day you ever truly lived. And it is not by anything that you have done. But it is by, in that great Chronicles of Narnia, there are all the statues that the white witch has turned to these stone statues. Aslan comes and what does he do? C.S. Lewis tells us that he, he breathes. And he goes to this one and he breathes. On them, and he runs to this one and he breathes on it. And all of a sudden, though they were once hearts of stone, became hearts of flesh. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why we live. This is why we dwell. This is why we long for the glory of God. This is why we evangelize, folks. Realizing that people were dead, as I was once dead, made alive in Christ. This morning, are you alive or are you dead? Let's pray.